Well, this morning we uh, return uh, to our study of the book of Hebrews, uh, which was written uh, to a small house church of Jewish Christians who had come to a crisis of faith due to persecution that they were facing. Would they go forward in their faith regardless the cost? Or would they retreat unwilling to pay the price of following Christ? You know, there's a little saying which expresses the purpose of preaching. It goes like this. The job of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Let you think about that a moment. Now, if that statement is true, uh, the writer of Hebrews was a very good preacher. Because that is exactly the style that he uses throughout the book. And we've already seen this. In chapter 1, he comforts the afflicted in the storm-tossed little church by exalting the supremacy of Christ, which was meant to be a firm anchor in the storms of persecution. Then in the first Four verses of chapter 2, he afflicts the comfortable who were carelessly drifting away from Christ. He sternly warns them, how shall we escape? How will we escape God's discipline? How will we escape God's chastisement if we neglect the great salvation he has given us? If we neglect to follow our Lord and Savior, if we neglect to respond to what God has spoken to us through His Son. Today, we come to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, where the emphasis returns to comforting the afflicted. I think it is extremely important to put yourself in the place of the members of this little house church who were struggling to stay afloat in the midst of just an immense, hostile, raging sea. The mounting breakers of Roman persecution were making them feel frightened, isolated, insignificant. Do you remember the occasion when Jesus' disciples were sailing across the Sea of Galilee and they got caught in a life-threatening storm while Jesus was doing what in the boat? Sleeping. (laughs) Do you remember the response of the disciples to Jesus in that crisis? In panic, they scream, Lord, don't you even care that we're perishing? Well, that was exactly the question that these Hebrew Christians were asking. God, where are you? 
Why aren't you doing something? And that's the same question we ask, right? When we struggle with our pain and perplexity. What the writer does now is he basically answers this dilemma for these Hebrew Christians. And he answers this dilemma by focusing on Jesus' solidarity with man. That Jesus cares so much for us that he became one of us in order to save us and to bring us into God's family as his brothers and sisters. As it says in Philippians 2, Jesus, although he existed equal with God, in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to selfishly grasp, but he emptied himself taking upon himself the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, the words of a song that we sang years ago here at Edgewood uh, really says it all. He laid aside his reputation when he came and stood by me, willing to take the lowest station when he came and stood by me. That's why I love him. That's why I love him. The very essence of Christianity is not about an absent God, but a present God. Not about an uncaring God, but a loving God. A God who loved us so much that he became a man to die for the penalty of our sin and then to rise again so that he could live with us forever. Think about this. In chapter 1, we saw the mighty power of God as he created out of nothing the wonder of this immense universe. And how did he do it? He simply what? Spoke. He simply spoke a word and out of nothing came what you see. But his speech was not enough to affect your salvation. It required not a word, but what? The word. The Son of God becoming a man who suffered, died, was resurrected, ascended to the right hand of the Father. Your salvation required the greatest demonstration that has ever been given of God's power. That's how much he cares for you. In your sermon notes, you'll see in this section, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, we're going to be looking 
at four main truths uh, that reveal Jesus' solidarity with man. Uh, And I trust four truths that will bring great comfort uh, to the afflicted. And just look at what those four truths are in your notes. Just scan over them first. Jesus shared the human condition in order to regain man's lost dominion. And we'll see that in verses 5 through 9. And the second key truth is Jesus shared the human condition in order to restore man's lost relationship with God. And that'll be the focus of verses 10 through 13. And then in verses 14 through 16, we'll see Jesus shared the human condition in order to rescue man from the tyranny of the devil and the fear of death. And the last great truth that we'll see in this portion of Scripture is Jesus shared the human condition. He became a man with us uh, to come to the aid of those who are tested, to those who are tempted. And notice, for each of these main truths, there are several points to amplify the truth and hopefully make us feel very secure in His love no matter what we are facing. Now, this morning, we'll just have time to examine that first truth. Jesus shared the human condition in order to regain man's lost dominion. Uh, I hope you have your Bibles open already. If not, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Let's read these verses, uh, 5 through 9. Notice, as I've mentioned in your note, uh, verses 6 through 8 are a quote from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. So I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 through verse 9. For he did not subject to angels the world to come. Notice, uh, let me just pause right there. If you were not here for the last message, uh, the primary focus of chapter 1 was what? Christ's supremacy, Christ's superiority over the angels, uh, which goes all the way through the end of chapter 1. And then there's the interjection of that warning to those that would not be, that would be neglecting this great salvation. And, uh, and that's the connection with the angels, because that's what he's been talking about. So, he did not subject to the angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, and then here's the quote from Psalm 8. What is man that thou rememberest him? Or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him, crowned man with glory and honor, and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet See all things subjected to him, but we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. These verses state the original intention that God had in creating. The human family, which is summarized in the next statement in your notes. God crowned man 
to be king of his creation and to exercise control over all things. That was God's original intention in the creation of man. Man was crowned king to exercise control as God's delegated authority. And, of course, this corresponds with the divine intention stated in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Man was created in God's image, and he was given a mandate to exercise stewardship over the earth, to subdue all things and to bring everything in subjection to himself. But did man fulfill the divine intention? It's obvious, of course, he did not, as seen in the dramatic contrast uh, that's seen in verse 8. Look at verse 8 again. It says, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, referring to man. I mean, the, the whole point of Psalm 8 is, is the psalmist is marveling uh, over the, uh, the place that God has given man in his creation. So he says, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Now pause right there. It's obvious, it's very obvious that the writer uh, wants the readers at this point to take exception and to say, Wait a minute, that's simply not true. I mean, all I see is nothing but chaos and disorder. And would we not all agree that the extravagance of that statement, that all things are subject to man, is mocked by human experience? And then he verbalizes it for us. But now, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. And that brings us to the next point in your notes. Tragically, man lost dominion over the earth when he failed to control himself and rebelled against God. Tragically, man lost dominion over the earth when he failed to control himself and rebelled against God. Adam and Eve were created to be masters, but they became slaves to the devil as they yielded to his temptation. As a result, sin entered the human race and was passed down as an inescapable hereditary disease to every person born. Since all are born sinners by nature, we grow up to be sinners by choice. And in God's justicism, the wages of sin is what? Death. Not only physical Death, but spiritual death, eternal separation from God, to know eternal punishment. See, it's important for you to understand that when God gave man dominion over the earth, it was a bona fide gift. I mean, it legally became man's, it was his responsibility. And what happened? Man fumbled the ball. He forfeited it when he yielded to the devil and sinned and rebelled. And when he did, that dominion passed from man to who? The devil. Now, yes, God in his omnipotence could have stepped in at that point and just wrested it away from the, the devil and got it back. 
But that would have been contrary to God's moral laws. It would have been contrary to His justice. In other words, since man lost the crown, only a man could justly regain it. And therein lies man's dilemma. As sinners, under God's judgment, none of us qualify. And it appeared to be a hopeless situation. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Jesus. And this brings us to the next point. Look there in your notes. Jesus came to earth as a man in order to raise the human family out of defeat into our glorious destiny to rule with God. Jesus came to earth as a man in order to raise the human family out of defeat into our glorious destiny to rule with God. Look at verse 9. But we do see Him who has been made a little lower than the angels. That's speaking of His incarnation, His humility in leaving the glories of heaven and coming to the ghettos of this sin-cursed world that was under now Satan's dominion, a world where men were Satan's slaves in bondage to sin, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death. He is now crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. See, through the virgin birth, Jesus came into this world as a sinless man. He lived a sinless life, a perfect life. Why? In order to legally qualify as a man to die for the sins of man and restore us to our God-given destiny. He regained what we lost. Now we do see Jesus lifted up, seated at the Father's right hand, all things subject to Him. And we have been saved to rule with Christ. This is your destiny as a believer. This is your glorious future as a believer. And this is why Jesus could tell his disciples, yes, you're going to suffer. Yes, you're going to know persecution. You're going to know hardship. You're going to know adversity in this world. But there is coming a day when you will sit on thrones with me. And this is why we read in Revelation 3.21, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, folks, what was the message 
to the beleaguered little church of Jewish Christians who seemed to be nothing in comparison to the might of imperial Rome. What is the message for us today? When we feel insignificant, when we feel isolated, frustrated, forgotten, unloved. You know how I often say that Jesus is worthy of your undivided attention? He is worthy of your undying affection? And he's worthy of your uncompromising allegiance. Do you know why? Because you. Because you have become the focus of his undivided attention. You have become the object of his undying affection. And he has given you, as a believer, the pledge of his uncompromising allegiance. He loves you with a love that death could not kill and the grave could not bury. A love that rose again to love you forever. Do you want to measure your worth in God's eyes? And look to Jesus Christ on the cross. Do you want to know how bright your future is? Then all you have to do is look to Jesus sitting on the throne. Now, let me answer a question that I know you may be asking right now. You say, okay, Andy, I get it. Man was created to have dominion over the earth. He fumbled the ball. He lost it. Man in this earth came under the dominion of Satan. Yes, Jesus loved us so much that he became one of us. To legally qualify as a man through his death to win that dominion back, which he did. And I, yes, I understand. We see him now seated on the throne, and all things are under his feet and subjecting him. Well, my question is, Andy, okay, I, I get this future bit, but how about right now? If he's on the throne and all things are subject to him, my golly, why doesn't he make things a little easier for me now? I mean, why this pain? Why this adversity? Why this relational conflict? Why why this? Why that? What we need to see is, since our destiny is to reign and rule with Christ, since we're destined to be His queen, the bride of Christ, as the church, is to be His queen, There has to be a compatibility of character. In other words, we have to be prepared to rule, prepared to reign. And what God has decided in His sovereignty is to use 
the pain and the adversity and the perplexity to mold our character, to fashion us, to prepare us for our destiny to rule with Him. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter chapter 1. And I just want to connect this with a passage that I've often referred to, and, and which is Romans 8. But I want to begin in Ephesians 1, and then we'll tie this together and close it up. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 18. I pray, and by the way, uh, this is a prayer that I pray continually for the Edgewood family. A prayer that I've prayed ever since I came here back in 1977. Began to pray it then, and I have continued to pray it to this day for this family. It says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling. In other words, what is the hope of His calling for you? That you are destined to reign, that you are destined to rule, that you have a glorious future. But not only that your eyes would be open to that destiny, to that glorious future and calling, but also to the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. In other words, it's talking about the riches of God. It's talking about God's riches that have been deposited in you, in us as a church family. To provide the resources that we need... To live for Him in every circumstance, to love like Him in every relationship, to look to Him in every decision, and to lean on Him in every challenge. So he says, I pray that their eyes will be open to see their glorious future. And not only that, that they'll see the, the resources of my grace that I've deposited in them that's available to them. And not only see that, that they would see, notice the next thing, the exceeding Uh, The surpassing greatness of the power towards us who believe that they'll see that my power has been made available to me. I think we would all agree it's one thing to know God's game plan. It's another thing to execute it. Our problem is power, power shortage. But God is saying, open their eyes to see there is no power shortage in Christ. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who infuses me with his strength and his might. And his power. But this is what I wanted to get to. Continue. Talking about his power now. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And look at verse 22. Doesn't this not sound like Hebrews 2? And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Whose feet? Jesus' feet. And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, in the fullness of him who fills all in all. The thing that I want you to see is that this Jesus who now sits on the throne, all things have been brought in subjection to him. All things have been brought under his feet. And this same Jesus is what? Also what? Head of the church. And because he's head of the church, the point is he now uses those all things that have been made subject to him as tools, as instruments to shape, fashion, and mold us into his likeness and to prepare us to reign and to rule with him. And that's why... We read in Romans 8, 28, 
that we know with certainty, with absolute assurance, that God causes what? All things to what? Work together for our good. And of course, good there is not synonymous with us being comfortable. Good there is synonymous with what? Being made like Jesus Christ. Because the next verse says, we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus. So God loves you so much, He sent His Son to die for you, to rise again, to save you, and He now sits on a throne controlling all things, and He gives you this iron-clad guarantee. Nothing, 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 nothing can touch your life that I can't use to make you more like my son. And I'm doing that because of your destiny. I'm doing that because your glorious future is to rule with my son. And I'm preparing you that your character would be like his character and there can be a compatibility of rule. So that's why God allows us to experience trial. He allows you to be wounded by others. Does that mean he doesn't care for you? We're going to rail against God? Where are you? How did you let this happen? And God, he said, no, I'm standing right by you. I'm right here. I'm the one on the throne. I'm controlling all things. And I I allowed this to happen. I I could have prevented it. I could have stopped it. But I allowed it. Because you need to learn to forgive like I forgave when I was nailed on a cross for living a sinless, perfect life. That's why God will allow difficulty to come to teach you patience, to teach you perseverance. What did James say? I count it all joy when I fall into trials and tribulations. Why would he count it joy? Because he understands what God is doing, preparing him for his glorious future. Knowing that the testing of my faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect work that I might be complete and entire, lacking in nothing. Remember what Peter said? He says, in this we greatly rejoice, even though right now for a little while... We are distressed by various trials. Well, why would we rejoice in the midst of distress? Now, I love the practicality of the Bible, right? The trans- we are going to experience stress. We are going to know pain. We are going to know perplexity. We are going to know struggle. But why would we rejoice in the midst of this? He says, knowing that the proof of your faith is more precious than gold refined by the fire. So that your life would what? Bring praise and honor and glory at what? The coming of Jesus Christ. So, we still hurt. We still struggle. We still are perplexed by why things happen the way they do. The thing I want to leave you with this morning, just simply this. Don't ever forget the hands that shape your circumstances are the nail-pierced hands of Jesus Christ. The one thing as a believer you need never doubt is God's love. He loves you. He cares. And He's standing 
with you. Standing for you. Causing all things to work together for your good. To prepare you for your glorious destiny and your glorious future. Father, thank you for the uh, wonderful truth that we've looked at this morning. Thank you for your amazing love, your amazing grace that we've sung about this morning, that we've experienced in fellowship with one another, and that we've discovered as taught in the Word of God. And so, Lord, I I don't know any better pray to pray as we've come to the conclusion of this message than the one I just read a moment ago. And so, Lord, I do pray that you would grant us as your people that spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of our beautiful, majestic Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, Lord, I pray that you would enlighten, open the eyes of our heart, the eyes of our understanding that we would come to see what is the hope of our calling. That we are destined to reign with you. We are destined to rule with Christ. And that you would also open our eyes to the resources you've deposited in us. And that we would not only see, but know experientially the greatness of your power, enabling us to face every circumstance in life, every relationship, every decision, every challenge. And that through all of that, we would be conformed into the image of our precious Savior, Jesus. For truly he is worthy. And Lord we pray. That you would take us. Who are sinners. Saved by your grace. And Lord. Make us worthy recipients. To sit on your throne. Open our eyes to see your love. To never doubt it. To know that's the one guarantee we have. And give us grace to lean on you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we extend the invitation today, uh, Andy mentioned earlier that possibly you're here and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And of course, in the message today, you heard how Christ, out of his great love for you, left heaven. Uh, to stand by you, to become one of us, uh, to die for the penalty of our sin, and to rise again, uh, to give us his life, to give us his love. And you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ by putting your trust, your faith in him, realizing that there's nothing that you can do to earn God's approval. It's all been done for you through the work of Jesus Christ. And you invite him into your life to forgive you of your sins, to take control of your life, 
to follow Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. And we would invite you to make that decision and to even make a public profession of that faith to demonstrate without shame, I love Jesus and He is worthy of my life. He is worthy of my all. This message has been primarily to believers and I trust it has brought comfort to the afflicted. That maybe you have a little better understanding of what God is doing in the midst of your struggle and your pain. And maybe you just need to have a few silent moments there in the pew just to acknowledge, yes, Lord, you're in control. And forgive me, Lord, I've been like the disciples in the boat, mad at you, screaming at you. Don't you care? I'm perishing. Lord, forgive me. Now I see. You love me. Now I see. You're only causing everything to work to make me more like you. And so, Lord, right now, this morning, I want to surrender all to you. I want to I want to give you the freedom to arrange the circumstances of my life in the way that you deem best. And I'm not going to focus so much on getting a certain outcome. That's your decision, not mine. It's not my decision whether I'm healed or whether I go home to be with you. It's not my decision what happens in this relationship or this situation. That's your decision. My responsibility is to see you. To focus on you. To follow you. Knowing that I can't go wrong trusting your love. Because you're committed to what's best for me. So stand as the invitation is extended. I'll be standing to greet anyone that has a decision of any nature.